Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Welcome to Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Vertel. Only me. <laughs> I'm Aida Osman the first, the only. Thank you. I love how Aida and I um, say that normally, and Louis <laughs> always needs to make a scene of how he says his name. <laughs> I, I do believe in showmanship and zest, which we need more of these days, so I believe I'm providing yes. a public service. Truly. The great showmanship, in <laughs> fact. <laughs> Can with, I tell you with something? Lewis, with Lewis, it's never enough. <laughs> I have never seen that movie. That's fair. That doesn't shock me. What was it? The Zac Efron on Zendaya. I'm interested in the idea of Rebecca Ferguson. I don't know what it is, really, mm. but um, mm. one day I might learn. It's just pure fun. There'd be nothing for you to really dissect and have a debate about. When people <laughs> say pure fun, I think they mostly mean it's colorful and nothing else. Because it doesn't even sound fun to me. It sounds long. Mm. Well, ketamine is pure fun and it's just white. Okay. Uh, so where are you drawing from experience or what is this? Yeah, just guessing. Ira? Are you just, hmm? are you ketamined up? Hmm? <laughs> the special K? <laughs> <laughs> special K, X, crack, not Malcolm. <laughs> Uh, what a wonderful episode we will have today. We're joined by a friend of mine, a friend of Lewis's, Sam Lansky. Now a friend of mine, I hope. I love him. Yeah. Well, I'll give you his number. Thank you. Please. Text him whenever, honestly. <laughs> I will. He writes books. He has a new one out. And he's also an editor at Time. I don't know how a person can do both of those things, but he manages to mm. do that. He's also a genius. You guys are going to hear how uh, smart this man is. So Yes. Uh, we'll talk about his new book, Broken People. Me having him on Keep It is repayment for him taking me to San Vicente bungalows all the time. What is that? Yeah, what is that? It's like the new members club restaurant in los angeles replace soho house it sounds like a gay thing is it a gay thing no it's just like a dumb la thing okay john favreau and his wife go noted bungalow is among the more sinister <laughs> but definitely gay words we have mm -hmm. yeah i believe it comes from sanskrit remember bungalow eight what is bungalow eight bungalow eight sounds familiar <laughs> the new york club that like Lindsay Lohan and those people used to go to in the early 2000s. Oh, God. Oh, girl. It was always a bungalow. <laughs> girl. Who would she have gone with? Mm, I was, that, that was maybe like her Paris friendship time. Maybe Hillary Duff pre-feud. Mm -hmm. Now, was she, was she a Paris Hilton Nicole Richie girl at any point? Lindsay Lohan? Yes. She was a Paris girl. I assume she was friends with Nicole too. I don't remember the 2000s that much stream nikki fresh on quibi also reminder to cancel your quibi very soon yes <laughs> yes if, if, that if is if about watched, to run out girls <laughs> if you got quibi to watch uh nikki fresh the show that i wrote on or uh, <laughs> game show which yes, matt rogers promoted on this show your trial membership is almost up 
We just want to warn you, girl. My calendar let me know that mine expires July 5th. <laughs> <laughs> I set, set a count. I, I set a reminder. That's like the last urgent reminder we have left in life. Like nothing is scheduled except for be sure to unschedule Quibi. Yeah. <laughs> Girl, I got my quick bite and now I'm leaving. I'm full. I'm done. <laughs> You're nourished. <laughs> All set. <laughs> We're also going to talk about the new HBO series, I May Destroy You, the new Netflix documentary, Disclosure, uh, some cancellations of some very problematic men and we also have queer hot takes this week we'll be right back to celebrate pride join us for crooked's first and hopefully last annual at home pride parade what a long title i know john lovett came up with that a live virtual event featuring a bunch of crooked hosts and special guests to raise money for LGBTQ plus organizations, including groups on the ground right now fighting for trans lives. So please tune into Crooked Media's YouTube channel on Wednesday, June 24th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific for a 90 minute parade. Love it bought glitter. So that's worrisome. Detective reboot Perry Mason premiered on HBO this weekend, and his first case is locating HBO Max on my Roku. He will be left wanting. <laughs> yeah. That's just a joke. I don't have a Roku. I have an Apple TV. You know, it's not a joke. The career of Raymond Burr. He was wonderful in Rear Window. I haven't watched the original Perry Mason, but I assume he was menacingly gay. This is for y'all. I'm not watching no Detective reboot of Perry Mason. You know what? We're not anti- private detectives right now, Aida. <laughs> I don't want to abolish the Maltese Falcon. Right. <laughs> okay. One can stay. One can go. <laughs> Take your uh, pick. I actually have watched a few episodes of the original Perry Mason, um, but it, you know, it's not extremely my bag. Yeah. Well, that's among the shows that I assume would be the most dated. Like, if you watch an episode of Dragnet now, there's some police issues in that show just in general. But, like, the treating of people who drugs as sinister and disgusting. There's, like, reefer madness vibes to some of the cases. Mm. Mm -hmm. I watched recently Bad Boys for Life. Oh. I watched it with a friend this past week, and it was, no, it's in the midst of us talking about getting rid of cop propaganda, etc. cetera. Uh, but I was like, you know what? It's the final Bad Boys installment. People have been telling me to watch it because it's enjoyable. And you know what? It kind of was. I, I would describe those films as the original Fast and the Furious movies. They're over the top. So this Bad Boys film was not directed by Michael I Terrorized Megan Fox Bay, which was a plus. Oh, Although he did show up in the film as the wedding MC in a little cameo. Oh, wow. That's really <laughs> crazy. I, do you know what my favorite thing about Michael Bay is, who's obviously been in the news this week regarding how unfairly we've treated Megan Fox and how people don't understand that she is very sarcastically funny all the time. Mm -hmm. If you go to his Wikipedia, there's a giant table of the actors he's worked with multiple times, and there's dozens. They are all men. Of course. Except for one, Megan Fox, who fucking hates him. Yeah. Men like that have that habit of keeping some type of punching bag actress around them, though that doesn't even shock me. The Megan Fox thing is especially shocking for me just because I feel like 
we revisit the fact that he was a piece of shit to her every two years. Right. <laughs> and, and yet, no, like, nothing really comes of it. And I think that's probably because we haven't had the sufficient Megan Fox second wave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Someone like her should be playing a character like Veronica Mars, who's like spilling with references all the time and mm-hmm. we, we trust her authority, you know, but we haven't really gotten that from her yet. Mm-hmm. Instead, she's, um, I guess, going on dates with Machine Gun Kelly. I, I have seen the, fi- the pictures, yes. Well, you know what? I had a moment where I was like, you know what? Y'all need to watch Beyond the Lights because Machine Gun Kelly is actually kind of hot. Uh, and then I realized he's just tall and white. And skinny and tattooed. He does make an appearance in yeah. the Judd Apatow film yeah. with Pete Davidson, part-time adolescence. And woo! Yeah. I had to pause it a couple times, but then I just pressed play and remembered. No Machine Gun Kelly. Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> oh, but um, she almost had a resurgence with a Judd Apatow film as well. This is 40. Mm-hmm. But I think that that movie just wasn't good. So, unfortunately, didn't really do anything for anyone in that film. Yeah. Yeah, middle-tier Apatow film, right. Well, that might be redundant. (laughs) (laughs) The the plus of Bad Voice for Life, though, is DJ Khaled. He is in it in a small scene, and he is actually fucking fantastic. It gave me that... um, sense I had when Cardi B was in Hustlers. Yes. Like someone who is sort of playing themselves but does it with such conviction and you really believe them on screen in that moment. And I thought that that was one of the biggest surprise takeaways I got from Bad Boys for Life. Totally a shock. And I the directors, um, it's either Adilin Bilal or Adilin Bilal, just depending because I know they're Arabic names, mm-hmm. but are doing a good job of casting, you know, Arabic people. So it's exciting to see Middle Eastern representation, even though it's DJ Khaled. But, like, I'll take it wherever I can get it. It's also just not a given that if you have a gregarious social media-ready personality that you will be a good actor. So I'm always surprised when that works out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lewis is digging at me. <laughs> <laughs> Timely, because it's been in the news lately with Chris D'Elia. I wish I were one of those Twitter thirst buckets <laughs> who would craft a story out of a minor interaction. Uh, because when I was on you, his trailer was next to mine. And yeah. <laughs> you could imagine the type of person who would be like, a log tweet thread where they said, you know, uh, my trailer was next to Chris D'Elia's and I just, I just had this sense. I knew that he was creepy. I felt the foreboding. I'm mad. I'm so pissed at you for this because probably somewhere in my drafts right now is a story of me meeting Chris D'Elia at the comedy store and how grimy I felt like he was. So mm-hmm. I'm the thirst bucket. The thirst bucket is I. <laughs> I never really had a sense, obviously, that he was grimy in the way that he was Praying on underage girls. I just yeah. thought that he was unfunny. He's unfunny and certainly off. Certainly off. Yeah. And as much as Lewis and I may enjoy um, Whitney Cummings, I always resented her for foisting him on us with the sitcom Whitney. 100%. Because <laughs> going back and watching that show, he just sticks out like a sore thumb in it. I'm like, why is he here? Though, justice for Malik Pancholi, who was on that show and who played Jonathan, yes. the assistant on 30 Rock. Oh, yeah. I always okay. thought mm-hmm. he was so funny. And weirdly, on 30 Rock, they like lost track of that character and didn't figure out like 
how to keep making him funny. Like his crush on Jack became too pronounced, but Mm -hmm. then Malik Mm -hmm. Pancholi moved to Whitney and then I haven't seen much of him lately and he's an out gay actor, so. Honestly, bring Whitney back. That was one of my favorite shows that really inspired me that women could be in comedy and, you know, be allowed the space to have their own television show and do whatever they wanted with it. Honestly, reboot Whitney and uh, open it by finding out that Chris D'Elia's character died in a horrible car accident. <laughs> yes. Or went to prison. Let's text her. Honestly, we'll start the room. We can start the room have, this week. Yeah. <laughs> have him go to prison for what Chris has apparently done IRL mm-hmm. and let that be the show. My favorite uh, clip that's circulating right now is Chris D'Elia having done a podcast with some of his friends and they tell him that Snapchat is actually, you can, there's a feature where you can like screenshot or save the messages and his face just drops to his ankles. Like he's so floored and you can see him losing his fucking mind in the clip I almost wanted to see him in that clip be assured that if someone takes a screenshot you get a notification of it just to see Mm -hmm. him like to To confirm yes that he was waiting for that relief but we didn't get that he's in trouble this is why straight men are dumb (laughs) there is not a single faggot who does not know (laughs) that snapchat stories can be saved and <laughs> downloaded, okay? If you send a dick pic through Snapchat, somebody has that in their camera roll. The whole world is seeing it. You might as well have plastered it on the front right. page of the New York Times. This is, of course, from the news that Chris, who played a pedophile in You, um, the show that I was in, and also wor- and also an episode of Workaholics. Yes, and another, uh, yeah, an old conversation. A, a, real, a real method actor uh, sure. is now accused of being one in real life. A woman named Simone Rossi opened the floodgates by tweeting, I still can't believe Netflix cast Chris D'Elia as the pedophile in You, like the literal irony. And since then, many women have alleged that he solicited illicit photos from them as teenagers or behaved inappropriately, such as requesting cuddles, making out, or joining him in a hotel room. Yuck. Requesting cuddles. Yuck. Requesting Yuck. cuddles. That, that, is, that, is, that is some of the grossest part to me. Because I specifically have an ex-like hookup in West Hollywood who um, his thing is like, cuddling and sometimes he'll text me like okay, girl. hey do you want to cuddle and I'm like that is truly the creepiest text I've ever gotten. I am grown <laughs> <laughs> I'm grown grown I don't know if Merriam Webster who's responsible for that word but we did a bad job coming up with the word cuddle like syllabically <laughs> I don't want to say oh, it totally totally and, but also it's too close it, to curdle yeah exactly too close precisely. To and also if talking about the, this guy who requests them, like we have words like spoon and stuff. Like think about how it's hitting my ear. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Well, no, he knows. He's. I mean, if he wants a younger girl, cuddle is probably the appropriate word. Mm. That's disgusting. Ugh. It's a horrible story. Well, and also the thing about Chris D'Elia, though, is that he's been a person that I guess people just generally haven't liked anyway, mm-hmm. which is why it was easy to get him up out of the paint this week as opposed to say... Ansel Elgort. Yeah, that's been pulling teeth. Well, because on Friday, a Twitter user identified as Gabby posted a statement accusing Elgort of sexually assaulting her in 2014. She tweeted a lengthy statement describing the assault, beginning by explaining that she was only 17 years old at the time. And he responded that he was a dick, um, but in an entirely legal way. And that thing has sort of gone away. Um, Which, to be honest, unfortunately, that's pretty much what I expected. Uh, just because it reminds me a lot 
of the Aziz Ansari story. Mm. Yes? Yeah. Um, and it is a conversation to be had about men being creepy when we're having sex. But so much of the story about repeating that she was 17, highlighting these things. Unfortunately, if it had come through like a publicist or, you know, like a journalist, you know, reporting this to really sort of like stick the story landing, I could see it um, mm-hmm. going somewhere further. But um, something like this, especially when it was at the age of consent at that time in the state, is um, going to be harder in a climate like this to stick something, particularly when Ansel Elgort, unfortunately, isn't a person who has a history of people hating him the way Chris D'Elia does, right? Was it you who suggested there should be a remake of Baby Driver, though? Yes. Uh, Well, so apparently John Boyega had initially been up for the role in Baby Driver, and um, I was like, replace Ansel with John Boyega and then cast Denzel Washington in the Kevin Spacey role. And uh, just reshoot it. Because the film, which I adore, by the way, um, I I do really love Baby Driver, is set in Atlanta. It's a very white film to be set in Atlanta. And there's also a relationship that Ansel's character, uh, Baby, has with a blind, older black man. Right. That seems a little white savory. Yeah. And a black character playing that role would be much nicer mm-hmm. also that relationship and then the relationship with john boyega and the kevin spacey character um would sort of say a lot about black patriarchy and fathers and sons in a way that would probably improve the movie as well my problem with that movie is i do believe there is a darkness to john ham and i do think it should be explored and i want to see it in the capacity of villains but i didn't believe him as that villain for some reason mm-hmm. and i felt like Maybe I think I was surprised that he ended up being the main villain at the end because he sort of just seemed like a henchman, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. felt more appropriate. So that escalation felt strange to me, or something. That's one of those films that, because of tax credits and things, like will shoot in a city like Atlanta, and then it ends up looking dumb when the film is majority white people. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> Unfortunately. That movie has some slick editing, though. That's very it memorable does. editing for a movie. Yes, I mean, that's a signature of Edgar Wright films, though. You know, he's a very slick sort of pop culture-oriented director. And the music really propels Baby Driver, I would say. I would just say, not my friends texting me, Ansel Elgort's actually Baby Lover. <laughs> I was so mad. <laughs> I was so mad. <laughs> I am bye. happy, though. I know, bye. I am happy, though, that, like, you know, women are finally having, I think, well, we were clearly living in like a pressure cooker and all this information was just simmering until it could come out. And, you know, it's timely and perfect that we had Drew Dixon on the other day because I feel like, you know, her story, her her documentary, everything has kind of emboldened women to come out and be inspired by other people. So let's go. Yeah. Justin Bieber fallen, Danny Masterson, Jeff Ross. Let's go. Let it all burn down. Start Hollywood over. <laughs> In light of these, one of the things that I've been watching this past weekend is the new Michaela Cole show, I May Destroy You, on HBO. And that is one of my favorite things I've seen recently. You have um, to explain this thing to me because everybody's obsessed with it and I haven't seen it yet. So Michaela Cole plays Arabella. She's a writer um, who has some sort of um, internet fame. And she's trying to work on her next piece and um, has some writer's block and goes to Italy for a few months, I guess, to work on it. Um, But the series starts with her returning to London 
Um, the night before the piece is due, she goes out with a friend and is roofied and raped. Mm. Um, and it's about her trying to piece together what happened to her that night and the other people in her life also dealing with a man that's cheating on you and that sort of sexual intimacy becoming a lie. Um, and then um, there's, there's a really amazing third episode that's in Italy um, where mm-hmm. her best friend Terry also deals with consent. Like the show blends genres, you know, like uh, she's regular Rob Serling in it. Uh, but um, <laughs> it also keeps coming back to the idea of um, sexual relationships and intimacy and uh, consent. And it is just such a beautiful, beautiful show. And it jumps from this serious shit to becoming such a hilarious comedy to then like mystery elements. Uh, I love it. I love it. And Michaela Cole is so fucking smart. Oh. And um, I'm glad that we're talking about this series so much because when everyone was having their flea bag moment, I was like, we need to be talking about Michaela Call. Thank you. Thank you. And as much as I love Phoebe Waller-Bridge and I will never dismiss her from this conversation, Michaela Cole writing the show, it's, it's easily one of the be- best pieces of television for me and hopefully for everyone else. It's the first real honest depiction of what it looks like to be a black woman who's assaulted. And then you get to watch Michaela's character, Arabella, go between denying it, accepting it, learning to fight against it, learning to accept it as well. And it's, it's dizzying, it's harrowing, but it's hilarious and beautiful. And HBO Max, once again, that girl, that girl and a half. I would also say that for people who are worried about it being sort of triggering to watch, uh, I think that it's handled deftly. It isn't salacious um, to the point of uh, making you just sort of relive this Right in a gross way. Um, you don't see it viscerally the way that you would expect it. Yeah. It wasn't triggering to me um, as a person who has been drugged at a bar mm-hmm. before. So um, I would say that it is a show that you can watch. And Michaela Cole sort of really has her audience in mind when she's watching it. Obviously, it's not about a situation like mine. It's about um, a black woman. Um, but she has her audience in mind. And you can tell that there's care taken to not just traumatize people with this mm-hmm. story um and it's it's having an important conversation but it, she's also telling a story and being fucking funny and there's great acting in it and it says so much about black female friendships and um it's also weirdly a very funny series that is about a writer and her best friend yeah. is an actor And I think that like setting it in London and not in Hollywood, you're able to tell this story in a more interesting universal way. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Watch it. Make sure you watch it. It's a good show, isn't it? It's a good show. Good show, isn't it? You get to to pretend that you have a bunch of black friends and you're partying in London too. So there's there's some enjoyment there, even though they're grimy. So speaking of harrowing yet important, can we talk about Disclosure for a second? The new Netflix documentary about uh, Mm -hmm. trans representation and... Hollywood history and how images of trans people have, by the way, been around since the beginning of film, including D.W. Griffith himself getting into into the mix. Let me tell you something. He does not handle it well. I've got news for you. Uh, (laughs) Really? Because I thought he handled blackface so well. I know. Right. The the master, D.W. Griffith. Yes. Um, This is a documentary that's a lot like The Celluloid Closet, if you've ever seen it, where... 
they go through all these old images that seem so crazy now, so inflammatory. And yet the other thing that's crazy is as long as there have been trans images, those images have not been for the consumption of trans people. Mm-hmm. No f- movie director in like whatever the the 30s, let alone or the 80s, whatever, put these images in their films, thinking, "Oh, other trans people will absorb these," or or even that trans people even really exist. Mm-hmm. It, it's basically a a real fast 101 swift study of how conditioned we were to dehumanize trans people, and the Talking Heads are so brilliant. Constantly, like we already know, uh, Laverne Cox can pop off with a TED talk whenever she wants. But every <laughs> everybody in this movie, Jen Richards, who's a trans actress, who like I is love like, Jen com- Richards, and she's so she's so smart, so smart. Yes, the way she mm-hmm. talks about um, I am Kate as a series, they're, they're very smart to sidestep dragging Caitlyn Jenner, who is trash on the record. Though <laughs> uh, <laughs> the way they sidestep it, though. Um, because they want to talk about the importance of how I Am Kate just allowed trans people to have real conversations on television right. that they had not gotten to have in any sort of other like reality series. Um, so they'll always be grateful to you know, the Kardashians and Caitlyn for facilitating this. Right. Uh, and also, I mean, like Candace Kane, a uh, trans actress, talks about when she was on the show Dirty Sexy Money, and in her first scene, to indicate that she was trans, the show lowered her voice two octaves so that the audience mm-hmm. would understand it. Just like simple things like that mm-hmm. that you we, that would never be revisited again are like given a spotlight here. And only Moments in the like, first episode. Too. Correct, correct, like correct. Like her first line of dialogue, they lower her octave, and then they keep her voice the same the rest of the episode. And, and that is something, as a fan of that show... Never even registered to me, obviously, watching this show in, like, high school. Right. Uh, and also, that show starred the unproblematic Baldwin, Billy Baldwin. Oh, I love Billy. They go through <laughs> things like uh, salacious episodes of Jerry Springer where, you know, people basically attack trans people on television. Mm-hmm. You know, it goes through all sorts of versions of representation, and it's just incredible to watch. Your parents should watch it. It's It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's so brilliantly laid out, and people are so smart about their own experience and how uh, watching, you know, Silence of the Lambs affected them growing up as a trans person. Just watch it. It's great. That's what I would say. It was a documentary that felt infuriating, um, but also galvanizing um, as a queer um, creator to just want to learn more about trans stories and help trans people better tell their stories, you know? I I think that we talk about how to be allies and, um, you know, while we are all three of us also marginalized people um, trying to make it in Hollywood. Uh, and I'll talk about that a bit more later in my Keep It. Um, it it's, is important to also recognize that um, we have more privilege in a way than trans people do, you know? And um, yeah. the Jerry Springer sort of thing was really interesting to me too, just because I have long contended that the daytime talk show era was so important despite how gross and racy and exploitative it was just because they talk in the documentary so many people about seeing those images on tv that was the first time they were seeing like black trans men you know or trans women sort of owning themselves and um i think it was um trace lissette um or jen richards just talking about the fact that these trans women of the time 
were being exploited, but also because of the way that capitalism is set up and discrimination against trans people, uh, they were also able to collect a check from these talk shows, right? So, like, going on a show and being a sideshow is paying your bills and keeping you fed and keeping you from having to do sex work or anything else dangerous as a trans person um, when you're on the marginalized sides of society. And um, I just remember that, you know, as a gay person, you know, like we would see gay people on these talk shows, right? Right, yeah. Uh, And it's just weird to go back and, and see them now and say, oh, yeah, those are crazy, but also they're real people. Um, and that was the first time we would have a site about that. Right. What What other opportunity did we have to see just gay people living? You know, we yeah. pretend like everybody was watching the real world at the time. It's like, mm-hmm. if I'm 11 years old, maybe I don't even know how to get to MTV. Meanwhile, right. what's on after The Price is Right? One of these shows, you know. Millions of people watching these shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and just speaking about queer people uh, being out there and representing themselves, uh, I know Lewis and I would be remiss to not mention the passing of Joel Schumacher. Oh, God. Um, on Monday, a fantastic director, I would say, yeah. um, who is basically should have his own book that is an addendum to Susan Sontag's Notes on Camp. Oh, sure. Because um, <laughs> he is a director who we've mentioned before, he's an out gay director. Uh, who was directing mainstream films at like Flatliners, Lost Boys, Batman and Robin, Batman Forever, and was he out at the time? Yes, just for yes. context for me. So he yes. was out of the. So when he put nipples on Batman, he was a gay man. Yes, people in Hollywood yes. knew that he was gay. <laughs> you know, wonderful, wonderful. And um, it's it's just really fun going back and revisiting these movies, which were campy and over the top. Mm-hmm. And just realizing how much of that was a gay man putting up queer themes into mainstream films. Yeah, intentionally having yeah. fun. The, so, so much of like the discourse about Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, like I just remember, well, I have three straight brothers. I remember them watching, or my older brother Jim watching the movie at the time and being like, ugh. And like, but not having enough context to be like, or giving me enough context to be like, this is a campy movie really meant to make you fucking laugh a lot. You know, (laughs) it is not a serious movie. I actually rewatched Joel Schumacher's The Client yesterday, which is, you gave us Mm. Susan Sarandon as a hard-bitten former alcoholic lawyer. Good performance to rewatch. I also rewatched St. Elmo's Fire, which is dreadful. Yes. It's um, it's awful. It's it's awful. But Um, gave us Demi Moore. I will say. Yes. (laughs) And Mayor Winningham. Mayor Winningham. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I will say the the pure faggotry of that movie's theme song though. Oh, uh, and, time and, how, and how it just and how it just blows up in every scene and who is I have I I've seen that movie like twice and it really is abysmal. Who is in the scene where they're basically just sitting in a bedroom and wind is blowing through <laughs> curtains dramatically and it looks like it's Suspiria? Oh yeah, the, that well like uh, Demi Moore is definitely sitting shivering during one of her vendors <laughs> in the movie. Um, uh, but uh, it, it, that that movie is signature Brat Pack in that it gives you childish men who are angry constantly for no reason and women looking offended with tears in their eyes. That's what we got from <laughs> Brat Pack movies. Yeah. Um, 
It definitely is interesting to see the conversation between the Batman films, you know, the way that um, straight men have really tried to reclaim them with the Chris Nolan films. Right. Uh, Chris Nolan, meanwhile, who's trying to kill us all by forcing theaters to reopen so people will go see Tenet <laughs> in July. Uh, sorry you want us to die for your film, Christopher Nolan. Yeah, right. But um, they want to reclaim Batman just because those 90s films are just so much for gays. Yeah, you know, right, right. <laughs> Like, yeah. Batman Returns is basically like an, an opus to, of Michelle Pfeiffer's, and uh, there, there's nothing gayer than uh, Selena Kyle's transformation in that film. And then you have Joel Schumacher's films, Batman Forever, uh, with Nicole Kidman in it as Dr. Chase Meridian mm. and uh, Batman and Robin with everything that Alicia Silverstone and Uma Thurman do in this film. Even Mr. Freeze is is so gay in that film. You know, like with the blue paint walking around in this fur coat. Um, Vivica Fox, Miss Behaven. Right. <laughs> no, my favorite um, thing in Batman and Robin is Alicia Silverstone having to hack into a computer and finding the password to the right of the screen. That's my favorite thing. <laughs> She's like, peg. Yeah. Uh, truly, whatever he was able to do to channel a gay man into Uma Thurman in Poison Ivy in Batman and Robin is deserves to be in the film canon forever. You know, a film that gave us the classic line, as I told Lady Freeze when I pulled her plug, this, this is, is a one-woman one show. <laughs> as Forever. she's fighting with Alicia Silverstone, and then as Poison Ivy takes a dagger and looks at her reflection. Correct. In it. Like, and the opening, which is the ode to Marlene Dietrich. Right, right. Uh, right. Another queer icon. Uh-huh. Um, there's just so much in Joel Schumacher's films that you need to analyze. Uh, even just down to making vampire sexy in Lost Boys and the the sexuality of having men like Kiefer Sutherland um, strapped to a table naked in flatliners. Oh, yeah. Also, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also making me sexually attracted to men in masks. Yeah. <laughs> Phantom of the opera of it. Yes. Oof. Oh, which reminds me, of course, of that uh, story that Minnie Driver told where she was talking about a, an onset story, Phantom of the Opera, where another actress whom she didn't name, I can only assume it's Emmy Rossum, I can't imagine it's Miranda Richardson, said um, <laughs> that, that Minnie, Minnie Driver was being over the top, and Joel Schumacher responded, oh, honey, nobody ever paid to see Under the Top. <laughs> <laughs> Legend. Legend, and I think we talked about this when Bowen was on. He reportedly said that he has fucked over twenty thousand men in his lifetime. So Joel said uh, that. Yes. Yes. So has- you know what he said it in his um, vulture profile. So go and read that profile. Um, R.I.P. to a legend. That's the level of gayness I expect from somebody who casts Drew Barrymore and Debbie Mazar as people named Sugar and Spice. Yes. So, <laughs> R.I.P. to a gay icon. Uh, we'll be right back with Sam Lansky. Black Stories, Black Troops is a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. 
Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations. There's no limit to the range of Black Stories, Black Truths. Black perspectives have always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and Black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Doesn't the Black Experience sound like a three-disc Prince album we never got? Someone check the vault, please. <laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. In our guest's new book, A Globetrotting Shaman Apparently Has the Ability to Fix Everything That's Wrong With You in Just Three Days. And the protagonist, Sam, is interested in the offer. Please welcome the author of Broken People, Sam Lansky. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm, I'm honored. I'm delighted. I'm humbled. It's very nice to see you all. Well, your first book came out pre-Keep It. So I know, I know. I didn't, I didn't have the chance to make this the most vital stop on my promo cycle on my <laughs> on my tour, um, and now we get to make up for all the lost time. I love it, Sam. The Gilded Razor is to me a book that would be incredibly harrowing to write. Uh-huh. You, yeah, uh, yeah. You reconcile with much of a very difficult, almost insurmountably self-destructive streak. How did you even <laughs> think to write a second book after that? Did you know you had it in you to write a second book? Can I be honest? I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know why I'm like this. I keep, <laughs> ask, I keep asking myself why I'm like this, why I keep doing this. Um, and and yes, I, I, I don't think I have answers for you. I don't know. It, it's, it's a weird thing. I mean, my first book was, which came out in 2016, was a memoir about my teenage years just being like an absolute terror twink. That's a term that I've patented. Um, just running amok all over New York City, causing all kinds of mayhem and, and chaos and dysfunction um, for myself and the people around me. Uh, and when I came out of that, I was like, I think I'm done. Like, what's the, you know, that's enough, whatever for the day meme. Like, that was me with like, that's enough books for today. <laughs> like, like I'm, I'm, I'm done with books. Um, and then this story just kind of came to me and um, and it was inspired by experiences that I had had um, and kind of things that I had walked through, um, primarily the experience of moving to uh, L.A. from New York, which I was actually the first person in history to do. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Speak on that. So Speak on yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so so it was, yeah, it was, it was kind of a, a historic moment, I think, for me and for the community um, when I bravely moved to LA from New York and then wrote about it. Um, but, uh, but I had this experience of, of moving to LA and feeling like the culture of like new age stuff and mysticism and wellness was so different here. Um, and I had this moment like maybe six months after I moved to LA where everyone had been talking about how the energy was weird. Like, I don't know if Mercury was in retrograde or like what was going on, but people just keep talking about how like the energy was strange in LA. And I had this moment where like I got home from a long day and was like, is energy 
real? Like, is there <laughs> like like if I like Carrie <laughs> Hilson says so. That's right. Yes. That is absolutely right, Ira. And I'm glad you're bringing <laughs> Carrie into this conversation. Um, but but I realized I no longer knew after six months in LA whether energy, the way people talked about it, was like a verifiable scientific thing that you could like yeah. like look at, or if it was just like a kind of made up thing that people kept talking about at Cafe Gratitude. So I, anyway, um, ener- energy, energy is real insofar as there's like calories and joules, but like energy in terms of like the energy beings, there is no scientific basis for that. But those are the kinds of questions where I was like, am I losing my mind living here? And a lot of that is sort of what I poured into this book, which is kind of like an interrogation of all of that stuff. What does it mean to be well? What does it mean to be well in a world where people are um, constantly trying to tell you that there's something wrong with you so they can sell you snake oil and like how do we navigate that and negotiate that when i started reading it i was shocked because at first i was like now i know this bitch told me he wrote a novel (laughs) (laughs) i did i I swear i did i know but i was starting and i was like did sam write another memoir uh because (laughs) the main character's name is sam and yes. he has written a memoir before about yes. addiction. Uh, mm-hmm. And he, what um, sort of inspired you to take your story and make it into a novel and sort of closely hew to um, things that had happened to you? I just have so much imagination, Ira. I'm just like such a like George R.R. <laughs> R. Martin kind of, yeah. Like I just, I don't know where I come up with this stuff. No, um, I had become really curious in my own writing about the stories that we tell ourselves about who we think we are and what we are doing in the world. Um, and as someone who had literally like commercialized my own story, who had like written a memoir and like you know promoted the memoir and people had read the memoir and like had spent all this time writing a story about myself I was really curious like what does it mean when we do that and the ways in which we all do that like the ways in which we do that on Instagram the ways in which we do that just as we kind of move through the world how that tendency to self-narrativize like can be a really great and helpful thing and also how it can be a thing that can keep us really stuck in like these made-up stories that we've told ourselves about who we are and how difficult it can be to break out of that. I wanted to write about that and I wanted the funhouse mirror effect of like writing about what in many ways is a kind of alternate reality version of myself who is also who is a guy named Sam who is a writer who is reckoning with like what does it mean when you tell a story about yourself to yourself to the people around you um, and how can that be a really freeing thing? And how can that be something that keeps us down effectively? So that's part of why I did it. I am happy to share that the New York Times described the book as a memoir in drag, which I, um, <laughs> uh, which I, I think was like a little bit of a uh, an an elbow, but like I really loved it. Like I, I was I was fucking delighted by that, honestly, um, because that's very much like to the extent that. Um, that now I'm mortified that everyone knows I like read my own press, which like truly, <laughs> let me just like walk, walk into the ocean. Um, but, uh, but I, I uh, Oh, go ahead. No, I was, you're, you're so sweet. It's like you're interviewing me. Um, I was, <laughs> was going to ask you, I mean, even though we're talking about, this is a fictionalized version of you. And I know that when a, an author writes a book, they probably discover more and more about themselves through this character. How did that experience go? What were you unpacking while you were writing Sam and being another Sam at the same time? A lot, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> God, there were so many things. I, I, don't, I don't know where to begin. Um, for a long time until I was smartly convinced otherwise by 
literally everyone, I wanted to call the book Gay Mistakes. Like that was my working title as I was writing <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because I was thinking about- Good, this. now I can use it. Yeah, yeah, no, please <laughs> run with it. Um, <laughs> thank you, thank it's, you. it's yours now. Uh, I thought about how many like, idiosyncratically and specifically gay mistakes I made um, in my 20s, like in relationships, in my career, in all of these spaces in my life, in my relationship with myself, um, just how many things that I had spectacularly fucked up that felt kind of like specific to my experience of being gay and being gay in the world. Um, and like, I, I feel like I spent a lot of my 20s really attached to like status markers and feeling like, you know, if I behaved a certain way or if people perceived me a certain way, then like I would have value. And that was something that I unpacked and interrogated a lot as I was um, writing the book, my relationship to or my attachment to all of the things that I thought made people see me a certain way and why I thought all of that was so important. And then I think, you know, this idea of self-narrativizing, like, you know, at the risk of getting like extremely velvet rage like you know entrusting that this is a safe space like i i had um i had a lot of stuff about like not being enough that i was continuing to carry like not feeling like enough which i think so many of us have and we process that in different ways right like some of us overcompensate some of us sort of undercompensate um some of us are ego driven from that place of like really having something to prove um some of us are self-effacing and I, I feel like I was all of those at once. And so mm. part of what I had to um, figure out was like, how do I change that story? How do I, how do I heal those parts of myself? Which sounds very like new age, witchy. Like I, I often feel like I am like West Hollywood's budget, Marianne Williamson, when I talk about this stuff. Um, but, uh, but um, Marianne Williamson should be budget, budget to begin with. She's, no, she's budget you. How about that? Oh my God, thank you. That, that, is, that is really kind of you to say. I don't know if I would go that far, but I'll take it. I would say so many things that are in your book that are like new agey things, literally flashing back, being like, you know what? I first heard about these things from Sam. Oh, really? Oh, good. good. Okay. I'm glad to be an evangelist (laughs) of like uh, (laughs) insane LA wellness culture. Um, That's all I have ever wanted to be. Um, I learned a lot about my own tendencies to like spin those stories about myself and then also how it is like possible to break out of those um and i feel like that was the big takeaway from writing the book (laughs) it's not even new agey i would say um one thing i really liked about the book was this this line towards the end um uh your sam is talking with um his ex-boyfriend um charles and he mentions you know that he turned the people in his life into characters he'd pick the narrative then fit people in his experience of them to reinforce it. Um, and that doesn't even feel new agey. That feels like shit I've been talking about with my new therapist that I got in quarantine. How is uh, the new therapist you know, going? And, <laughs> I want to hear about them. that. Okay. I love them. Okay, I love good. them. Um, it, but it's this idea. What I really liked about it too was it It felt as gay men, you know, the, the book was about body image issues, but it was also about relationships. And um, 
I was talking with a friend of mine the other night and a therapist about this, you know, like this idea that you meet people in your life. Um, and I think it really touched on sometimes you have relationships with people, people that you date, um, and you're sort of like, why didn't this work out? Um, or you're um, thinking that this is the person that you're going to marry. And then you realize sort of later that um, you met them and they had one aspect that was really great for you. But then you shaded in that aspect in every other moment that you were with them to make it fit this narrative that you had, you know, and like on a base level that is like if you think a guy is really funny because like he makes you laugh once, like every other time you're interacting with him, you're like, who he's the funniest person ever. <laughs> and then when you break up with him, your friends will be like, girl, he was not funny. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so I really loved how the book like touched on like sort of lies we tell ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, that, that's a perfect articulation of it. We do tell ourselves these lies and like at the risk of being overly cute, I think a, a lot of people were like, why is this a novel when this is like in so many ways clearly about you or a sort of version of you? And like the whole point of doing it as a work of fiction is that every story we tell ourselves is a work of fiction, yeah. right? Like every, the, the, the very act of being like, this is who I am and putting that out in the world whether it's in your Instagram story or in a book strangers are reading, like is this act of creation of a work of fiction. And we do that to other people too, I think, or at least I do. Maybe that's just because I'm a lunatic, but um, I feel like uh, so many of my relationships and experiences were about, okay, how can this person reinforce what I already believe about myself or what I already kind of think to be true about myself. Um, and the work I think is in like, actually seeing people for what they are and you can do that in retrospect usually you can look back on that relationship and be like oh like i was not that dope like he was not actually funny um but it it usually takes a minute and like part of what i'm trying to get better at what i'm talking about with my new core therapist who i love is um <laughs> and we'll be talking to you later today uh is um <laughs> the you know how how do i like close that gap between me doing the same like stupid shit that I always do in my relationships and in my life. And like, how can I get to where I'm realizing like a week later that I did that again, as opposed to like six months later or when I'm writing the next book, <laughs> like how can I like, you know, close that space. So I become a little bit more aware of my own patterns. After all this time, are there parts of yourself that you find surprisingly difficult to write about or talk about i would th i would think almost at this point you you have it down to a science but like uh, Thanks, uh i'm sure that can't be the case yeah uh i wouldn't i wouldn't say it's down to a science um i i actually just the other night i was looking through like some of the stuff that i kind of wrote along the way to writing this book and i had so much resistance to writing certain parts of the story and to talking about certain parts of the story like i you know had always really struggled with body image stuff um and that was just something that i had a really hard time talking about for a long time um there's a line in the book where sam says something to the effect of like it was as if by not talking about his body people would not notice that he had one and that was always how i 
felt. Like I always felt like, okay, if I just don't address the fact that I have a body or what size it is, everyone will pretend like it just doesn't exist, you know, and I'm just like a disembodied soul. And I will not have to deal with the fact that I'm like in this weird skin suit all the time. (laughs) And that was something that I had so much discomfort about that I knew it was important for me as a writer in my process. And I'm sure you've all worked through this too in your own, you know, writing and, and, you know, comedy and everything else. Like anything that feels sticky is probably going to be interesting. There were so many things that I felt and thought while writing this book where I was like, cool, I'm the first person in human history to have felt this way, like to have had this specific feeling. And like always those are the universal feelings, you know, always those are the feelings that I think people respond to in the deepest way is the thing that feels so like specific and embarrassing that you could never, ever say it out loud. I felt like there were like trip wires all over this book. I mean, I was writing about the body image stuff. Um, I was writing about sort of um, mysticism through this new lens. I really wanted to write about prep and sort of like the way that's changed um, how gay men uh, approach intimacy with one another. Um, And that's a big theme of the book, too. All of that just felt like I'm totally fucking out of my depth writing about this. Um, but I just had to kind of like forge through and and hope for the best um, because uh, because there were all things that I felt like were really kind of important to to say. And it's good that you brought up the specificity stuff. Because actually, what I was going to ask you, I mean, I know that all of us as queer writers have this again, sticky situation where we have esoteric stories and we have these very specific ideas about the world. When Do you recognize that when you're writing and go, maybe I should hide some things so more people can understand what I'm trying to say? Or do you just write as honestly as possible and hope that that gets your message across? I have learned that the more specific the experience, the more universal the feeling. And I think that's just like a general rule of thumb for me as a writer and and as a person who made a career out of over-disclosing and like sharing extremely personal parts of myself, um, that like the deeper I go into something that feels totally, totally specific, the better what I'm sharing will resonate deeply. I had this experience with writing my first book where like, you know, I was just, I was such a nightmare as a teenager. And when I wrote that book and sold that book, when I was still, you know, pretty young in my mid twenties, I was like, oh, they're letting me do this because my story is so batshit because my boyfriend when I was 17 was 43 and I was like, you know, running all over Manhattan, like just kind of uh, creating so much chaos. Like the singular weirdness of my story is the only reason I'm being given this platform. And then the book came out and I heard from all of these people who were like, I, I connected to this so much, like I related to this, like you have told my story. And I was like, I don't think so, because I thought the whole point of this was that my story was really distinct and, and special and unique. <laughs> and that was really like humbling and kind of, um, you know, ego reducing for me to realize that by digging in and not shying away from the specifics, I had actually made people feel kind of seen or, or understood Um, in a way that I didn't know was going to happen. Like I thought I was writing this like freak show story of my own madness and actually people found it really relatable. Um, And that was a good like capsule lesson for me in, in the importance of continuing to do that. Do you, um, do you find it hard as a writer to go back to the careers that like we've had, you know, before writing, you know, you're still, you know, West coast editor at time. Do you find it weird to like still be to be jumping back and forth between these things? 
it's funny to wear both hats of being both the sort of like interviewer reporter, like, you know, person who's seating space to make room for somebody else, which is so much of what I'm done in my career. And then to suddenly be like, quote unquote, talent. I don't have a better <laughs> word for it. <laughs> um, the and- glistening in your eye when talent was said. <laughs> I will remember it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that was haunting. I'm so sorry. Um, but, uh, but, you know, suddenly like you become the, the subject after, um, after having not been for a really long time. And that cycle of moving into like, now I am the, the person who the kind of spotlight is on is just like weird and disorienting. I feel really, really lucky to have a job, a career where I have this kind of flexibility and where I get to do, you know, really cool stuff and like work on, you know, big projects and work on cover stories and and do all of that. Like that's super gratifying for me. I'm more aware of the like sudden shift from being like, you know, the guy who's just sort of like on emails and like, you know, hunched over my desk. And, and then I'm like out in the world doing stuff like this. And I'm kind of like, holy shit, I, w- I wasn't prepared for that after a long period of like of sort of visible dormancy do you have a favorite time cover story that you've worked on i mean like time now when i think of they have annual issues that are always so exciting etc and they seem like intense undertakings there will sometimes be a hundred contributors most of them celebrities yes um do you have particular issues that you are um, fond of i definitely have issues that i'm fond of i'm trying to think of like the ones of which i am most proud we do the Time 100 every year, and which is our list of the 100 most influential people in the world. I contribute to that issue. And putting those together year after year is like one of the great joys of my life. Um, because the whole idea is that you have celebrities writing about you know, other people, like every contributor is a bold-faced name. Um, so I, I come up with these pairings you know, alongside a lot of other um, really smart people. And then we like go see if we can make it happen. And um, the like behind the scenes wheeling and dealing of that is really fun. And the um, finding out who actually likes who (laughs) is really fun when you like repeatedly um, go to people and you know, who you think are like our friends are aligned and they pass um, and they don't actually want to do it Mm. uh, right about the person that they're sort of like um, doing a, a performance of friendship with wherever like that that kind of thing is really fun i think that's that's like my favorite part is like the pulling (laughs) back of the veil where i'm suddenly like oh okay i didn't know that all right um and uh and then getting to like you know pair those voices together i mean like there are just so many that have been so wild that we've been able to put together i like i had adele write about rihanna a couple years ago and that's just like you know i mean like that's that's like the dream that is everything you want um and she could not have been more excited to do it and she could not have been more and it's like it's a beautiful write-up you know it's just like it's a perfect perfect tribute from one legend to another um so like getting to have fingerprints on stuff like that is crazy and the coolest i love that you know um can't wait for you to reach out to um lewis to write about me um, oh, is, oh you think that's what's going to happen? I'm very excited for that. Yeah, he'll write a ransom note and I say, was say I, I, Lewis, what I would have say? Ira." <laughs> it will be written in giant magazine letters for one thing. Yeah, help me. Yeah. 
Uh, thank you so much for being here, Sam. Thank you so you much know? for having thank me. You. I'm like I'm so honored. I'm so happy for you. Thank you. Thank you. I really I I appreciate that. I'm thrilled to have this opportunity to speak with you. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. And we're back with one of our favorite new segments of quarantine. Uh, we're doing hot takes again. It turns out other people have opinions. It's not just the three of us. And I am both relieved and a little worried that other people could contain this much rage and then express it. This time, we're not doing pop culture hot takes. We're doing specifically queer pop culture hot takes. So they should be extra piquant. And we are going to have our own opinions on these takes. I'm prepared to be mad about them. I have a fly swatter ready to swat at the bad hot takes, so we'll see how it goes. <laughs> nice. I mean, I'm just naturally contrarian, and I love fighting, so let's see what happens. Done. All right. Hi, Ira, Aida, and Lewis. My name's Dominic from New Hampshire. My queer hot take is that killing Caesar is the gayest thing that has ever been done. So these people, they leave the city of Rome to have this, like, ceremony, and they've been secretly plotting to kill Caesar for months. Talk about a stunt. And they walk into the room, they distract Mark Antony. How camp? And they go, six for Tyrannus! And Caesar, who, like, is, like, the epitome of camp, it's, he's all about spectacle and, like, just, like, I'm going to wear these things that are totally taboo, and, like, I'm going to be like, oh, king, who? Amazing. And so they say, Semper Tyrannus, bitch. And then they kill him and stab him a bunch of times. And his reply isn't like, ow, it's nothing. He looks at his friend Brutus and just goes, et tu, Brutai. He's like, even you? Like, you know they were dating. Come on, you know there was something more than that. They were friends with Benny's at least. Anyway, though it was the gay, and it created like the gayest, like, civilization of all time because, like, What's gayer than a gladiator match? <laughs> Nothing. So that was pretty gay, pretty queer. And despite all of that, it was a mistake. Our boy Caesar deserved to live, I think. <laughs> all right. Thanks, guys. When he said the words killing Caesar, I for a second thought there was a Bill O'Reilly book I didn't know about. But secondly... Yeah. Um, <laughs> Or, if or you're a like, Phoebe Waller-Bridge spinoff of Killing Eve. Right, <laughs> I really yes. didn't know. Is there a character? Yeah, does Villanelle have a brother I don't know about, etc.? Yes. Yeah, if you're going to be killed in an ambush in Rome, and yet you still have a witticism about you, I, I have to respect what can only be described as queerness there. That's what that is. Truly, it jumps out. I would say that the killing of Caesar is not necessarily the gayest thing ever. And I would actually say that that's pretty mundane and straight. It's a bunch of senators. Um, <laughs> I will say that um, a real queer event in history was 
modeled after it and in turning the killing of Caesar into camp, that is where we got our gayest historical moment, and that is John Wilkes Booth killing Lincoln. Okay, to add to that, I do agree with you. I would argue anything premeditated is gay, just off top. I, would, I think I would argue also murder is gay. Just, just murder in general is gay. I would argue any assassination is gay. To spend that much time mm. consumed with the life and death of another man, mm-hmm. to have that look in your eye. It's the same look in your eye that I see when Ira talks about Charlie Puth. It's a gay look. <laughs> it's just a gay look. Uh, I think that, you know, but like transforming the killing of Caesar, stealing the six Semper Tyrannus, shooting Lincoln in a theater after Lincoln himself had been warned not to come to the theater because his wife was having premonitions, much wow. like uh, the Ides of March warned Caesar um, that he was going to be murdered. I think that it just took the Caesar murder and made it camp. Yeah, there are two things here that are very gay. I just want to reiterate. Planning. Planning. Planning is like, yeah, you know what I'm saying? We all, we all have the one who like gets the Palm Springs trip together. That's what, like, th- that person is also an assassin is what I'm arguing. Well, it's certainly you. I have a feeling it's I'm you, somebody who's in the passenger side recommending yes. we listen to like Helen Reddy music while the planner actually <laughs> runs the show. Um, Baby, Lewis is no planner, okay? Let yeah. me tell you, Aida, how Lewis throws a birthday party. Uh, There was was one particular birthday that was at the beach. And all of our our friends are heading to the beach and texts just start coming in. Hey, could you bring some ice? Hey, could you bring some cups? Hey, does anyone have a speaker? Hey, does anyone have chairs, blankets, an umbrella? I'm like, damn. He said, did anyone have sand? There's no sand at the beach. He said, bring your sand to the beach because your beach is better. You guys, you guys, neither of you will understand this, but as an as an artist, I can't be held I can't be held to account when it comes to mundane things. You know what I mean? Like I'm too I, I'm a servant to the spirit and the muse. And therefore you okay. have to you have to bring things like food and ice and ways to occupy yourself for my birthday. Sorry. There's That's also just how it there's is. also limited RAM in your brain and you've used it all with like the angle of Kate Blanchett's cheekbones. Like right. you have that See? memorized. So I understand. Uh, the bandwidth's gone. Lewis and I are both <laughs> Leos, um, but uh, we, and I feel but it we, every fucking have, day. We have different <laughs> controlling aspects of Leo dump. Like mine manifests in wanting to micromanage the party, mm-hmm. um, but still wanting people to do things for me. His manifest mm. in wanting people to do things for him for the party, but explicitly just asking them to do things. Right. No, so. and they have to and they have to figure out themselves they have to do it. I can't I yes. can't even be aware of the inventory of what's occurring. Yeah. Uh, I will say to wrap this up with the Julius Caesar stuff, the gladiator shoe is definitely a gay shoe that's too much string. Why are you wrapping around the legs so much gay? Right. Mm. It's very yeah, a lacy shoe. Explain it's it so to me. So lacy. Remember when those were coming back? What do you mean? It's, it was it's always like it's always like a Charlize Theron or something that just wearing a gladiator shoe yes, in public. Yes, a Blake Lively <laughs> and like a romper and a gladiator <laughs> shoe. I I'm with you. They're just so fucking dramatic for <laughs> going to brunch and it's usually <laughs> White women in Hollywood who do it. And by the way, I do want to say, I want to shout out the gayness of the show American Gladiators, where 
I, I'm not super concerned with who the men were on that show, but the women were named things like Ice, Gold, Diamond, Siren. Just they were like superheroes who loved climbing walls and uh, rolling you over in a giant ball. And I think that's like an underrated queer series. Mm. Anyway, um, Killing Caesar, kind of gay. Sure. But Confirmed. taking it to the next level and recreating the killing of Caesar, in my opinion, to kill an American president in a theater is um, even gayer. Yeah, ultimate gay. Ultimate gay. Yeah. HRC recipient, John Wilkes Booth. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so let's roll the hot take. Hello, this is Eric calling from London, England, as you can tell from my accent. My queer hot take is that parades are trash. <laughs> Pride parades are trash. Fourth of July parades are trash. Parades celebrating some sport ball team winning are a trash. I hate parades. They're stupid. You basically are standing there watching people walk. Now, parades at Disneyland, maybe the electric parade. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that's it. Thanks. Bye. Eric. First of all, Eric. Um, first of all, did, didn't really hear an English accent there. Don't know what was going on. Uh, so a little disappointed. A <laughs> little disappointed. I... I don't even know how to respond to you because I don't want to do the accent and make you feel bad. You know, like, are you aware? Do you know what you sound like? Me? <laughs> I think you're, whenever you do that, you sound like Ainsley Harriet. Truly, I'm brought back to Ainsley Harriet in the late 90s. Yeah. But about uh, so, the parades, finally someone said it. Finally someone mm. said what I've been feeling. I have, My last experience with the parade was at Mardi Gras in New Orleans, and I got a fucking cabbage lobbed at me, which is apparently tradition. So, no, <laughs> fuck parades. I will say, though, I would be a little bit more supportive of this take if I didn't feel it was subversive Disney propaganda. Like, when, yes. I, when, when, I, when a <laughs> Disney gay is in my midst, first of all, I smell you. I, 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 can, you, I can hear you and your friends already singing along to songs I don't want to hear ever again and then you're whatever obsessed with bringing up the gayness of Jafar we've already relitigated that I'm <laughs> done with that whatever pride parades at least there's something about occupying a street where the rowdiness should be I think subversive in some way Irish parades etc that's just it's just beer stained and loud but Putting gayness in the middle of the street, I mean, mm-hmm. something is actually accomplished, I feel. So I can't fully dismiss a pride parade. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Yeah. Parade, as, parade as protest or parade as celebration feels different than, like, the very American parade. Something about parades and why I dislike them is they feel so American. And they're very, like, John Philip Sousa-looking ass type. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like, stars and stripes. Where are we going? Walking from A to B. Like, that's so Oregon Trail. I don't like that. <laughs> like, what's the point? Sit yes. your ass down somewhere, bro. Listen, I always want to raise the roof. I want to carry on before the parade passes by. All right. And See that these? is from Hello, Dolly. And that <laughs> is gay fucking culture. And sure. I will always support a parade. Who's your favorite Hello, Dolly, by the way? Mmm. You know, I did see Bet. Was that an A plus? Yeah, yeah, it was an A plus. But you know what? I I also love I love um, Octoroon Carol Channing. Oh, oh yes. goodness, my favorite word making an appearance. Thank you. <laughs> I will say Hello Dolly is definitely gay canon, but I don't think it's it's lesbian canon. So I'm lost here. Mm-hmm. I don't have a favorite. I will say mm-hmm. I think Carol Channing might be the most imitable celebrity of all time i think she's the number one like everybody can do yes you know that everybody can talk like that mm, mm. Girl, come for her 
Um, <laughs> she came for herself for until she was age 103. So. <laughs> um, and then there's also the um, 1968, um, I think, Tony performance from Pearl Bailey. Yes, of course. In the all-black production of Hello, Dolly. So, See that one? hello, let's celebrate that. That yeah. one might be for me. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I like parades, although famously, just don't really go to them. I do have to say, if you've been to five, I can't imagine you're going to get a new and innovative parade experience anytime after that. Like, you know exactly mm-hmm. what you're going to get when you go to any kind of parade. They all process at the same speed. I wish we could vary the speeds of parades a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Although, I do remember at World Pride last year, the parade being extremely delayed. That was a parade where people were pouring in from all these different side streets all the mm-hmm. time. And so some people were just sitting on random New York avenues for five hours at a time before they even started moving, wherever they ended up moving to. Yes, I think it was um, our friends Joel Kim Booster and Matt Rogers were stuck on a parade float for Comedy Central that just was not moving. (laughs) It was right in front of my hotel, and I was like, I think I'm going to take a nap. And I went upstairs, came back, and they were still there. (laughs) So sometimes parades do suck. Sometimes they are trash. Yeah. And there's also, again, we've already discussed that planning is a, a queer activity. If a mm-hmm. parade, if a gay parade isn't planned properly, I don't feel like my community is representing itself at it, you know, to the, to the mm-hmm. nth. Yeah. Anyway, um, enough of that Disney propaganda. Thank you. <laughs> the fuck is the electric parade? I know. Uh, not, <laughs> do not say those words at me. No. <laughs> well, you know, the, ele- the electric, their electric parade's pretty... Electric parade's pretty fun, in it. Oh <laughs> uh, why don't we hear another hot take? Hi, keep it. Um, this is Izzy, and my lesbian hot take is that the two like butler housekeeper people from the Lindsay Lohan parent trap, Chessie and Martin, um, were not in love with each other. They were both gay. Um, to think that Martin at all found women attractive is like a crime against nature. Uh, and Chessie lived with like Dennis Quaid and didn't think he was attractive, but thought that Martin was attractive and like fell in love with Martin. And like, I don't, I don't know that, that seemed like some sort of like comp het bullshit. We're like, you know what? We're just going to like make her think she has to fall in love with this ugly British person and like get together with him. No, that was stupid. Um, I wholly believe the parent trap owes me compensation for taking those two gay people and putting them into a relationship just to tie up those nice loose ends. Like, no, Chessie was a lesbian. Like, that woman screamed dyke energy to me. And Martin was a gay. Like, he's a gay man. Like, that's just what it is. Like, end of story. But they did me dirty. And I think about this once a week at minimum once a week since I saw that movie when I was a child. Like, I knew back then. Before I knew I was gay, I knew they were gay. So that is my very, like, impassioned hot take about the Parent Trap characters that probably no one else really cares about, but I care about I care about deeply. Okay, thank you so much. Okay. I care about this. I do. I care about this. The crush that I have been harboring for Lisa Ann Walter, who plays Chessie in The Parent Trap, is something I've been quietly living with for a long time. Because, you know, as a black person, to like a white person, I have to come out of the closet. And um, <laughs> so I will just keep that quiet to myself. But I will say this. I don't agree with you. Be- mm-hmm. 
on the the merit that you said that uh i got i feel like i'm debating like in middle school again um when you said come on that, denzel <laughs> come on ld come on fred the great okay, debater <laughs> so you said that chessy might should have liked dennis quaid but she had a working relationship with him she lived in this man's house they were friends for a long time and even mm -hmm. though she couldn't tell that the girls had switched i believe she had a type of clairvoyance because i think she respected the relationship knowing that dennis was spoken for dennis was going to get back with the woman of his dreams so i feel like i don't know i just don't agree i don't agree at least on that side of it mm-hmm it does yes. seem crazy to bring up the queerness of this movie and not bring up Elaine Hendricks, who I believe I, right. I think I think I was put on this earth maybe as a forum for Elaine Hendricks fandom to express itself. <laughs> Just that that kind of like um, cat eyed, like uh, uh, sultry smile. She her pre her presence. It's not that she looks exactly like her, but she reminds me of Liz Fair a little bit. There's that kind mm -hmm. of like like dark cool funny energy and that is what i take from that it's like a spunky mouse you know yes right <laughs> exactly mm -hmm. and i mean clearly elaine hendrix is the queerest part of the parent trap because she then stepped into one of the gayest of all iconic roles uh she plays alexis carrington colby currently on the reboot of dynasty uh the role originated by joan Collins, so you know, hello, that's history. <laughs> that's history, love. I was wondering how long we were going to go before Ira mentioned Dynasty again. It'd been a, a while. <laughs> It'd been a long time. Thank you. I I think it's a, an, an appropriate <laughs> amount of time, though. An appropriate amount yeah. of time. Um, and also in, in that movie, it's been a long time since I've seen The Parent Trap. Pardon me, but doesn't she threaten to send those Lindsay Lohan to Switzerland? Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. That's. See, that's what I'm talking about. When I signed up to be gay, I wanted evil. I wanted um, controlling the, the futures of helpless underlings. Um, mm -hmm. That's what, that's and what hats. was in the pamphlet. Yes. yes, right. yes. Mm -hmm. All types of hats. That's what was yes. in the pamphlet. So I just want follow mm -hmm. through. Yes. Well, Ira, what do you think of this? Yeah, what a wonderful childhood we had growing up with her and um, Joan in Adam's Family Values. Mm. Mm, yes, quite. You know? And also, by the way. Women um, who hate children. <laughs> <laughs> and also by the way Elaine Hendricks in Superstar not a good movie but her role very funny where she plays somebody named Evian mm -hmm. yeah and it's Molly Shannon movie. screams at her hey Evian go drink a bottle of yourself <laughs> that character's named that just for that joke right exactly yeah. no it, even as a child I was like is this just lazy like they didn't have to name her that but it's for that joke <laughs> yeah. uh yeah, I truly, uh, I truly disagree with the take as well. I get what Aida said about the working relationship. I mean, Dennis Quaid is hot. We all know this, okay? She acknowledged it as well, you know? But you just, you don't cross that boundary, you know? This isn't Sabrina. <laughs> Speaking my language, yeah. <laughs> By the way, can we again talk about Humphrey Bogart and his quote-unquote sexual pull of an audience the man was a pretty camel he was a camel <laughs> a pretty camel uh, it, he like what would audrey ever see in him no and audrey who's like the most geometrically perfect not just human organism who has ever lived being into him it just doesn't work yeah it makes so much more sense in the remake when the humphrey burgart role was played by harrison ford quite yes an actual hot man yeah, with some sexuality about him as opposed to just cigarettes. Yeah. It's, it's, he's always like, 
here's a looking at you, kid. You know, I'm, I'm always like, no one wants to be looking at you, Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> I know it's looking at me. No one's looking at you. <laughs> Ingrid Bergman's like, I'm fine. I don't know about you. <laughs> please, 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 let's look at me. <laughs> uh, besides, the true um, relationship that um, this caller is talking about from um, the parent trap, the, the real gay version of that is uh, Cece and Niles in The Nanny. Oh, Oh, that is exactly what I was going to, when I first, you know, heard this, I was like, no, 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 no. Cece and Niles, for sure, for sure, they were, they were gay. This is not true. I will say, though, Chessie, I don't think is gay, but Martin, gay. Mm. (laughs) Gay. Gay on his own. Singularly, singularly gay, but gay. But, But famously, just, you know, like, as much as I enjoy Nancy Myers. You know, as a strong woman. Right. And uh, makes a lot of films that also center women's um, sexuality and um, women in business. Not a lot of queer content. No. To be honest. I I don't watch Nancy Myers films and go, hey, that's speaking to me as a gay person. The closest (laughs) is she wrote the movie and got Oscar nominated for Private Benjamin in which which Eileen Brennan plays like the drill sergeant woman who like makes Goldie Hawn's life (laughs) hell. And then there's a lesbian reveal with her. That is actually pretty strange for the Nancy Myers filmography though because I don't expect that type of thing from her. Right. Um, The the thing you expect from Nancy is just like really being horny for kitchens. Right, no. (laughs) A a, a skillet set, yeah. I'm talking about copper. Yeah. Yes, an island that you just want to lay across and bake cookies. Yes. Picture Michelle Pfeiffer and the Fabulous Baker Boys, but on a kitchen island. That is the ideal Nancy Myers experience. Yes, she's baking, and she's baking the boys. <laughs> That's too much. So, that was no, no, dumb. No. That was dumb. I'm Good sorry, try. Michelle Pfeiffer. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, anyway, what I think about this hot take is Nancy Meyer, love her, but not a queer icon. True. Sorry. I like this. We should keep doing hot takes. Yes, I agree. People out there are spicy, and it deserves to be heard. And also made fun of. I think we do a good job of that. (laughs) Coming up next, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode, as always... It's keep it. How's, how are you guys doing this week? You know, I, 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 I would say I'm in a better place than I usually am in a pandemic. I, I say usually am because it's been now, what, seven or eight years. Um, yeah. But um, <laughs> always when we get to the point of the show where we do keep it, I have to warm up for it. I have to gather the strength to get through the rancor. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, get your shoes, baby. Get your shoes, baby. Aida, you can go first. <laughs> okay, well, this week my keep it goes to Tina Fey, or in black circles, I like to call her Tina O'Fey. Um, wow, wow, wow. <laughs> wow, where do I begin? <laughs> where do I begin? I, ju- I just got it. I just got it. Good, good. Yeah. So in the wake in the in the wake of the nation deciding to give a fuck about black people, um, the people over at Thirty Rock are deciding to finally pull the episodes of the show that feature blackface. Uh, is there one? No. Is there two? No. Is there three? No. There's four fucking episodes that feature blackface. So Tina, Miss Miss O'Fay, 
Look, girl, nobody cares about your late, late, late decision to fix what you did like 10 years ago, which you are a grown woman. You are 50 years old now. You wrote those episodes with your team and your big age of 40. You knew what you were doing. Like, I just don't understand how I'm supposed to feel, especially in the memo, which is Tina Fey's request to NBC and other streaming services to pull the episodes. They have the nerve to call it race changing makeup. Bitch, what the fuck? What are you, what, where do you guys pull these concepts? Why don't, how about when you're talking about our issues, you call it what we call it, which is blackface, which is what you did. And the frustrating thing is now I'm here screaming about blackface, which I can't even really be mad about anymore because it's at every single corner. Um, I'm more mad about the virtue signaling that white people and white creators are doing and they're suddenly deciding that they want to repent for their ignorance because we're just like stepping on their necks about it. You, just open your purse, Tina. Don't apologize. I don't care what you did. You already did it. You've been profiting off of, you know, punching down on Native Americans, women, black people for your entire career. Like, you're not going to fix that now. Just pay us. Just pay. Donate to a black mutual fund. Do something. Help black creators. You did this most recently again on, on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt where you cast white people to play Native Americans and used race-changing makeup and at that time, back in 2015, you didn't apologize for it. You said, I no longer am apologizing for my jokes. So I just don't know what's changed. And I want to see I want to see more from you. I'm not going to tell you not to do it, not to pull the episodes, pull them. But um, that's the very least you can do. And yeah, give me money to write a show, Tina Fey. That's it. That's what you can do. What I'll point out about the Tina Fey thing, too, is... It's sort of a lot like the Sir Silverman thing in that there was a particular time in comedy where white liberals were using things like blackface or other racial jokes as a way to comment on racism being bad. But there's the question of if you are using racist epithets and also um, you know, racist caricatures or racist imagery to comment on racism, are you then creating racist imagery yourself? A central part of this kind of joking is the idea that the, the white creator is saying, I understand racism, so this can't be racist. Mm. You know, yeah. and it's like, why would a person of color care whether or not you think you're racist? Like, you're centering yeah. your own self-belief in a way that I think is probably just annoying. You know, probably right. just, like, are you really, like, writing this material thinking, oh, I hope a person of color sees it? Probably not, right? That's the thing about it, too. It's, you know, this is right after, like, Spike Lee's Bamboozle, too, you know? It's like, yeah. we have black people already who've addressed blackface and why it's hurtful and here you have white people doing comedy to make a commentary on this and it's like no one is watching 30 rock looking for um tina fey to denounce blackface you know it's this weird sort of thing that i would say that white liberal comedians have where they want to comment on something and it's you know what? Hire some black people to comment on it. You know, mm -hmm. like I, I would look at blackface jokes from a um, black sitcom and a black creator, but also a black creator probably doesn't want to deal with that shit. You know, it's this curiosity in stuff. You sort of like with gay jokes or other things, too, where, you know, like straight people, cis people, white people, like they, they love to in their comedy have these sort of boundary pushing jokes. And the question becomes who are you pushing the boundary for? 
You know, you're pushing it to entertain other white people. It's not for your audience. And it's also, again, self-congratulatory. It reminds me a little bit of like, if I post something about whatever, coming out, Pride Month, whatever, on my Facebook or whatever, inevitably somebody whom I don't know will come out with, wait, you're gay? And it's like this moment where they're indicating to me that they get it, that they are cool, but it's meanwhile also contrived. It's also wanting my congratulations that they're liberal enough to be cool with gayness. And it's like, you just wasted my time with some bullshit. And yeah. I'm and yet I'm supposed to congratulate you for it. People people often do that with me too. They go, Well, you're black when they post photos. Yeah. It's strange. strange. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna actually use just a segue into mine because it's the same conversation. Um because it's reminding me of the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt where um, Tina Fey came under fire for a episode where Titus is, you know, playing like a geisha and it's, it's a very racist oh, yeah. episode towards With Asian Americans. All that powder, right? all that powder on his face. Yes. Right. And um, that was another thing where it was supposed to be commenting on how racist it is, but it actually just ended up being racist. And I remember Tina Fey defending it at the time and yeah. being mad at people for being mad at her online and sort of just talking about how, like, that's why I'm not on social media, you know, like, people are always upset about these things, um, as if we should be thanking her for being anti-racist enough to caricature Asians on her Netflix series, right? Um, and this brings me into my Keep It, which involves... Um, the responses to racist shit like this. Uh, we, we, we all know that um, one of my friends and former co-workers, Megan Amram, came under fire this week for um, some yeah. an- explicitly anti-Asian tweets. Jokes making of Chinese people, um, making fun of Asian people in general. Um, they're ableist tweets. A lot of them are just like really sort of horrendous and not funny. And, and there's the question of whether or not you believe um, her apology or not. Like, some people think that she should have gone further in her apology and explicitly acknowledged what she did wrong. I'm not here to address that, though. What I want to address is this weird need from people to expect people of color to comment on what white people are doing. You know, so I think a lot about the Toni Morrison quote where she said, you know, the function, the very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. You know, leave me out of it. Leave me out of it. Because in the sense of this Megan Amram stuff, our friend Bowen, who was just on the show, had to come out with a statement uh, about Megan's tweets, right? Uh, and his first tweet is, hello, I've been asked by lots of people to talk about the Megan Amram tweets, which, in addition to being ableist and anti-Semitic, were explicitly anti-Asian thematically even. And he goes into why they are racist and about how it's sort of the basis humor, etc. But I want to talk about why Bowen Yang, who did not hire Megan Amram, who does not work with her currently in any capacity, who people are tweeting at him and also Matt Rogers because she was recently on Las Culturistas, their podcast. Why it's his fucking job to do a tweet thread about why Megan Amron's tweets are racist just to make you feel better. I find it so dumb the way that we constantly 
when someone does racist shit like this, the way we exhaust other people of color to make a statement about it, you know? And I get that we should be denouncing racism wherever we can, you know? And I get that, like, we have shit like the fucking president making, like, kung flu jokes about COVID-19. And so there is a lot of rampant anti-Asian racism that is just sort of, like, allowed in the common dialogue right now that we should take a stand against. Uh, But I also just find something, like, exhausting and sinister about people tagging Bowen and being like... I, what do you have to say about this? You know, about people tagging William Jackson Harper from The Good Place, being like, what do you think about this? She was a writer <laughs> on your show, et cetera, you know? And, like, there was a comment from some woman that was just like, truly the, it's getting weird, uh-huh. the comments. <laughs> this, this, this woman responded to him, I just want to thank you on Juneteenth. Um, where, you know, like, we are all thinking of better ways that we can be an ally to black people, and you took time out of your day to be an ally to me as an Asian woman. And I was like, girl, shut the fuck up. That is so so weird. That is so weird. Juneteenth, the holiday where we think of other people. Yeah, Right. (laughs) You bringing up Juneteenth to thank this black man for making a comment about Megan Amram's racist tweets about Asian people and yes we are all in this together and I'm glad that he made a statement about it because the tweets are horrendous but also it is Juneteenth and also this black man has been dealing with the horrendous shit has been happening to black people in this country for centuries and especially being highlighted in the past couple weeks if he didn't want to take the fucking time to write about some tweets from someone who wrote jokes for him on a TV show that is not even on the air anymore. He didn't fucking fucking have to. And also, this is what makes me, this is the evil, insidious, cyclical part of this, is that Bowen keeps making headlines when other people do racist shit to him. We remember when he got cast on SNL, when Mm -hmm. Shane Gillis and Chloe Fineman, and he got cast on SNL, and Shane Gillis got removed from the show because of the racist, anti-Asian comments that he'd made, and everyone was like, oh, how does Bowen feel? How does Bowen feel? And Bowen was trending all over Twitter and Bowen should be trending because he's fucking talented. He's amazing and he's an amazing creator and an amazing comedian and it just, this keeps up fucking happening to him and it's so frustrating. Lauren didn't say anything. Why should Bowen have to say anything? Right. And also the Bowen thing of there was, there was a joke of Kat Cohen um, being canceled recently too, like an Boo, old that video bitch. that she, <laughs> an old Boo, video she made where she, where she put a noose like around a black person's neck in some sort of joke. I want to know who the black person was in this video, by the way, um, <laughs> because he should have known better too. But um, people were tagging Bowen and Matt, being like, "Make a comment about Cat Cohen. Make a comment about Cat Cohen." Why do they need to make a fucking comment? Because they know him, you know. People were rudely tagging Andrew Law, being like. Uh, another friend of ours being like, oh, you are working with Megan on The Good Place. Um, where's your comment? Because he's Asian, he needs to comment. I want to also point out that we need to talk about power structures in Hollywood. And everyone just mm. maybe thinks that it's a free-for-all where um, we all have the same sort of power. But it's like, I just worked on a sitcom, um, an animated sitcom, Q-Force, with Megan um, that she was a co-producer on. You know, And I am a 
writer on it, you know? I am a story editor on that. I am several rungs below her. Yeah. So the only reason people weren't tagging me, being like, what's your comment on it? Because the show's not out and they don't know about us working together, right? They don't know. Um, but people probably would. And that's a thing where it's like, she is so many rungs above me that my comment on it is like, it's not like I hired her. It's not like I could fire her. You know, it's, mm-hmm. there are people of color trying to make it in Hollywood, working for Megan's, working for the Tina Fey's, you know, right. like I wouldn't expect a black person who was in 30 Rock to be commenting on these blackface episodes. And they shouldn't have episodes. to put themselves in the line of right. fire. Because we are working and getting checks so that we can hopefully go and create our own content and don't have to work for white people who think it's funny making racist jokes. So fucking frustrating. Also, th- on the occasion that somebody like that does respond to something like this, like, seriously check their Twitter mentions. And if you're like a white person, would you want to deal with some of these fucking people? I mean, it's just... No! Th- what you open yourself up to, clearly, is like... So time-consuming and so potentially grisly, you know? Yeah. It's always like, thank you, thank you um, for doing this. And I'm like, you are, you are exhausting me. But then also like weird naysayers yeah. too. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was weirdly reminded though that I was in an episode of an Emmy for Megan. Uh, her web series. <laughs> uh, of course you were. <laughs> and, and, the, and the episode was about diversity, right? Uh, and one of the jokes is uh, she did a 23andMe and finding out she was a 1% Korean and um, maybe she should be pretend to be Korean for the diversity. <laughs> um, and to be fair, that joke was funny because there were jokes that I ad-libbed that she should pull an Emma, <laughs> Sto- that she should pull an Emma Stone. <laughs> yes, well, as long as you if, brought it back to the right. other fuckery white woman. I know. Doing, I was I'm like, you, you should pull an Emma Stone. If people ask you about it, tell them it was Lena Dunham's idea, not mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Surprised no one clipped that out and dragged me. <laughs> anyway, that is just to say, my keep it is this is exhausting. Stop it. And Boo Cat Cohen. I just want to add that in there. So uh, I have not seen that video, by the way. Not that I'll I send it. I'll send it to you, Lewis. Okay. It's a mess. Yeah. And Lewis, what's your keep it? Sorry. <laughs> um, this is a fearful keep it. Um, okay. It's out of appreciation. But uh, my keep it is to these goddamn K-pop teens and TikTok tweens who, as we know, trolled Trump to a legendary extent and filled his Tulsa stadium for his rally with nobody. And I want to say that that's a wonderful feat and a, a clever feat. But again, I am now 33 years old. I am already <laughs> afraid enough of mortality. I cannot be afraid of the power of people half my age. I'm sorry, you have now become time consuming to me. You are smarter than I am. You can you can I think you can ruin my life in ways that I I won't understand until 15 years from now. I think you're aware of technology <laughs> that that like literally like the Apple Store isn't familiar with yet. So I'm just saying when you are great and when you are um successfully trolling uh, Donald Trump in ways that by the way like Every comedian is trying to do and failing, like actually getting under his skin, actually like ruining the reign of terror in a certain <laughs> way for him. Know that I'm afraid of you and that mm. um, I can only appreciate you as I tremble mm. in your shadow. That's fair. I'm a K-pop fan and I'm, I'm afraid of other K-pop fans because first of all, every group has like 70 fucking members in it. And right. I, barely, I barely know like two members' names and I remember all of them. Yeah. Uh, I will say that um, 
I love the activism from K-pop stands just because as a K-pop fan, K-pop, unfortunately, does have a history of anti-blackness. Yeah. Uh, oh, right. You know, mm. like a lot of, you know, like wearing black, like hairstyles and, you know, like there's some black, fra- I mean, I think it was Ma- Mama Moo um, was a K-pop group that like did like a Uptown Funk parody and like there was like some blackface involved. So like this is shit like, you know, this weird sort of like, anti-blackness pervades racism everywhere, right? And it's not, and Asian culture, um, Korean culture isn't immune to it. Um, and a lot of K-pop in the past has um, sort of done shit like that. So I'm glad that there's sort of this reckoning of um, K-pop fans coming out for Black Lives Matter um, and just sort of making amends um, because I love K-pop. And, you know, like, people should listen to Blackpink and Red Velvet and Twice and Sistar and Chung Ha and Sunmi. Sour Candy is rising in my favorite Chromatica tracks. I will say Sour Candy is rising in my yes. favorite Chromatica tracks. That's fair. And Blackpink has a new out, a song out Friday. So stream that shit. Anyway, um, that's our show. Thank you to Sam Lansky for joining us. And we'll see you next week. This has been Keep It. Keep It is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Reston is our producer. It's Caroline like the princess, the one you don't care about. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadine Melkonian, for filming and editing our video content every week. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.